0: Well, good morning. Um, turn in your Bibles with me, please, to uh, 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. Uh, and as was already mentioned, I had planned on finishing this three-part series on the life of Elijah the next time I was here. Uh, but when I got the call from Justin yesterday morning, I felt like this sermon was more ready to go in short notice than that one. So decided I would... Um, Take us to 1 John, and Lord willing, next time I'm here, we'll, we'll finish the series on Elijah. So let's, uh, let's begin by uh, reading this passage, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Our Father, what wonderful, beautiful words these are. God, we thank you that you are love. And that in love you have given your own Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To save us. And God, we know that you have therefore called us to walk in love. And Lord, we pray that as we meditate on that this morning, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would be changed that we would reflect you in your love for your glory and for our own joy. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this passage uh, reminds us that love is the most central thing that we are called to as Christians. Uh, That of all the different commandments and all the things that the Bible has to say, uh, the central message is about what God has done for us in Christ. And therefore, the way that we are to respond to that by walking in love ourselves. Uh, th- this passage reminds us that when Jesus himself was asked, you know, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That he said, this is the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and heart soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, It reminds us also of um, in, in John chapter 13, right? As Jesus is getting ready for the end, he knows he will be betrayed. He will be crucified the very next day. And he gathers his disciples and he says to them, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is to be the distinguishing characteristic by which the world knows that we are disciples of Jesus. This reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, where he says, Knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. And of course we need knowledge. Knowledge is tremendously important. Truth is essential. And yet bare truth without love does nothing but inflate our pride. Love edifies. Love builds up. It reminds us of Galatians 5.14 where Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, in fact, All of the commandments throughout the entire Bible are really just an exposition. They're really just fleshing out what it looks like to walk in love. Love sums up and fulfills the whole law. And if we truly walk in love, then we will find that we do not break a single law or a single commandment of God. And then finally, it reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that, that famous chapter about love. And in that chapter, Paul talks about how prophecies will fail. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away. And then he says, so now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So... We, right as we come to this passage, should be reminded, love is the greatest. Love is at the center. Love is that one word which sums up the whole law. Love is that old commandment which we had from the beginning. You can go to the book of Leviticus and read, love your neighbors yourself. And yet it is the new commandment that we have in Christ, who has now shown us in an even deeper and greater way what the love of God is like when he himself came and laid down his life for his friends. And so, in light of all of this, John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, to this struggling church, he's writing to, Beloved, let us love one another. Now, now, notice, first of all, how he starts. He says, Beloved, loved ones. Now, most of us have probably hit some low in our life when we have wondered, Does anyone really love me? And even those people who maybe think they really love me, do they really even know me? And John comes to these Christians and and he begins, he addresses them as beloved as those who really never have to ask that question, who never have to wonder because the one being who is God over all, the one being who knows them perfectly and intimately is also the one who loves them. I mean, that is just central to your identity as a Christian. You are beloved of God. And when we wake up in the morning, we can get out of bed and think, who am I? Well, I am beloved of God. And John is writing to this church, reminding them, you are beloved and therefore let us love one another. And and notice the way he commands this. You know, he's not like a military general who's just sort of rifling out the commandments. He's more like a father who's kind of putting his arm around his son and saying, this is who you are. This is how you are to walk. Let's do this together. Let's love one another. Let's strive toward this. Let's Seek after this. Let's let's live this way. And then he gives reasons why. He says, Beloved, let us love one another for, and he gives three reasons, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, So reason number one, love one another because love is from God. And let's just stop and think for a moment that God himself is the source of love. I mean, all of us have, you know, there's great stories and we have favorite movies and favorite books. And and in most of them, there is love at the very center of it. And and there's something in our being that, that we know love is something beautiful, something wonderful. And love comes from God. I mean, the reason that love exists is because God is a God of love. And so when he made this creation and spoke it into existence, he designed it such that there would be beings like human beings who love. That is a reflection of God. All love comes from him. So we as people made in his image, let let us love one another. Now a second reason. Love one another because whoever loves has been born of God. Now, biblically, sons share the likeness of their fathers. So you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, for example, in chapter 5, verse 3, it says that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Right? We, we see this in John chapter 8, where Jesus tells the, these Jews who are opposing him. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Right? It's just an obvious principle that, you know, that sons are they reflect their fathers in, in some way. Um, and, and so what John is saying is look, if you have been born of God, if you are a child of God, then you will reflect God by being loving because love is what God is. God loves. Uh, you know, when 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 I go to the zoo, I, I think of you see the monkeys, and it's just amazing that even the little baby monkeys can swing on the branches and you know do all these amazing things that um, any of us would immediately fall down and hurt ourselves. Um, and yet they're able to do that because they're monkeys. It's their it's their nature. It's just what they are. They they they. You know, get born and the next day they're swinging on branches. It's just what they do. And if we are born of God, then we will love. We will reflect our Heavenly Father in His love. But there's also a difference here. Uh, because, you know, unlike the monkey that's just born and from day one, they're, they're a monkey and they, they live that way. Well, we're not born from day one children of God. We are born sons of Adam, and even in one sense, sons of the devil. We are born in sin. We are born with hearts that are opposed to God, and we grow up not practicing righteousness, but we grow up in so many ways practicing unrighteousness. And then at some point in our life, by the grace of God, we hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and we repent and believe, and the Spirit comes into our heart, and we're born again, we're changed, we're transformed, we become children of God, but we have this whole history of living the wrong way, this whole history of living for ourselves, of not walking in love. And so maybe a different illustration would sort of capture the other side of that. And, you know, imagine for a moment, um, you know, some human baby that's raised by wolves. You know, think of like Mowgli from the Jungle Book, right? And here he is, he's a human being, but he has been raised by a wolf pack. And so, you know, he grows up and he kind of learns to act like an animal. He doesn't wear clothes. He, you know, doesn't know how to eat with knife and a fork and it just sort of, beastly in his behavior. And then imagine one day some, you know, people come along and they find this child and they kind of rescue him, they bring him back to civilization. And you can imagine him coming into a human home and it's just so confusing. And you know, he, he doesn't know how to dress, he doesn't know how to bathe himself or eat or anything. And there would be this process of his new family helping him understand, you're not a wolf. You you are a human. And therefore, this is how you're supposed to live. You need to realize who you really are and then live that way. And, and, and here, when John is talking to these Christians, he's not merely saying, okay, look at your life, and if you are loving people enough, that's how you know that you're really a Christian. He's also commanding them to love one another because whoever loves has been born of God. And so what he's saying is, look, Christian, you need to realize that you are a child of God. That you That's who you really are. That is your new nature. And now you need to learn to live like it. You need to learn to live like who you now are in Christ. And as a Christian, you are called to walk in love. To love one another. Because God is a God of love. So reflect Him in learning to imitate your Heavenly Father in love. So, love because love is from God. Love because you, whoever loves has been born of God. And now reason number three, love one another because whoever loves knows God. And then as he continues in the next verse, verse 8, he says, And anyone who does not love, does not know God, because God is love. And so what John is saying here is that real knowledge of God produces love in our lives. Right? In other words, to the degree that you know God, you will walk in love. And if you do not in any way walk in love Well, you don't know God. Uh, now the, now the first key to understanding what John is saying here is to realize that, that there's a difference between knowing about someone and really knowing them. You know, we, we could probably all, our, our doctor would know all sorts of things about us. He, he could tell me things about how my body works that I don't know. You know, he could all sorts of facts about me. And yet, I think we all understand, you know, my doctor, who I'm sort of superficially acquainted with, doesn't really know me the way that, you know, a close friend or my parents or, you know, my siblings know me. Right? There's a difference between just knowing about someone and really knowing them. And one of the things that's going on in this church to whom John is writing to, uh, there were these false teachers who were kind of these proto-gnostic teachers. And so they were they were very into sort of secret special knowledge of God. And instead of just focusing on the plain clear teachings, you know, they believed these, you know, weird and wrong things, but they they were all into sort of, you know, secret connections and genealogies and all sorts of weird stuff like that. And you can imagine the Christians in this church, they're sort of intimidated by that. They're thinking, well, these guys seem to know a lot more than me. They seem a lot smarter than me. I don't don't know what to think of all this stuff. Um, and, And I think here what John is getting at, he's saying, look, whoever loves knows God. And you can, someone may know all sorts of facts and all sorts of things. But the test of whether that knowledge is a real knowledge of God, not just someone who knows all the theological jargon and knows a bunch of facts, but someone that actually, intimately knows the Lord, is whether or not this knowledge is producing love. Because God is a God of love. And if you really know Him, then you know that everything that God is and everything that God does is characterized by love. In fact, as he says, God is love. Now, now that doesn't mean that love is sort of God's most important attribute. You know, as if love is somehow more central to God's being than faithfulness or righteousness or goodness. You know, when we we understand God, no, no, God is all of that he is. All of those attributes are essential to who God is. But what it means is that love touches all. That everything God does, he does in love. That his righteousness is a loving righteousness. That his faithfulness is a loving faithfulness that his justice is a loving justice that even in God's outpouring of his wrath he does it from the purity of a god of righteousness and love you know God's wrath is not tainted in some way like you know we our wrath is tainted with lack of love God's is not like that and it also tells us the fact that God is love reminds us that God Himself is the very standard by which all love is measured. You know, love itself is only love insofar as it reflects God and what God is like. There is no other place you can look to to see sort of a better example of love, to see love more clearly than simply to know God because God is love. And all other love is, if it's real love, is just a reflection of God and who he is. And so what all of this means is that, you know, we, if you really know God, well then you're gonna know that he is love. It means you're a Christian and you know that you sinned against this God. that that you rightly deserve to die and go to hell for your sins, and that this God in sheer love and mercy and grace gave His own Son to redeem you. And you have come to know that kind of love. And so when you think of God, you know God is love. You know it. And so the the other thing that, that John assumes here and understands and what he's saying is that there is a link between knowing God's love and then loving others yourself you see it's not really possible to know God's love in an experiential real kind of way and for that not to somehow change you to where you actually love others yourself you know scripture says it like this in second corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 it says that as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Right? It's almost like those old you know, Polaroid, Polaroid pictures. You, know, you snap a picture or something and then it slowly develops into that same image. And it's like the way God has made us, that which we behold in worship, we begin to grow like. And that's why Scripture says, those who behold idols that cannot see or hear or talk, they become like them. But those of us who know the living God and behold Him and worship Him and know His love, we grow to reflect Him in that love. So, what we've seen is that we should love one another for three reasons, because love is from God, because whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, has been born of God, and three, whoever loves knows God. But how then should we love one another? Well, like, what, what does real love look like? If, if, we, if we feel, okay, I, I need to love, well how do I do it? Well, now John continues, and what he does is he now points them back to this example of love that we've already begun talking about, of God's love for them and for us in Christ. And there's two aspects of that love that I want us to meditate on. And the first one comes from verse 9. And it's that God's love, true love, is costly. Love is costly. Verse 9, John writes, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Now, notice first of all that God's love was manifested, that is, revealed in real, visible action. Right? God is not a God who has loved us in word only, but in deed and in truth. Now, this is certainly not to minimize the significance or even the costliness of words, but there are mere words of love which can be cheap. Uh, look back at First John chapter three verses 16 through 18. John says, "By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers." But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? He's saying love needs to go beyond just making promises and just saying nice words. It needs to extend to real, tangible action. And as John points out in chapter 4, verse 9, God, His love was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Not only did God give us great and precious promises throughout the whole Old Testament, but then God Himself gave His Son to enter into our world, to come to us, to show us His love. God not only tells us he loves us, but he has demonstrated his love for us on the cross. And that action is costly. It's much easier to tell someone, go, be warmed and filled, than it is to actually give up what you have to meet their needs. You know, think for a moment if you lived in a part of the world where there was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. And if you go into debt by some unfortunate circumstance, that means you would go to prison. And then imagine some friend of yours willingly choosing to sell their car, sell their house, give up their retirement savings so that they could come and pay your debt and rescue you from having to spend the rest of your life in prison. I mean, that would be costly love. That would be love manifested in a deed, in action. And yet even that pales in comparison with what God has done for us. That God gave and sent his one and only son to come into the world not just to be apart from his father but but even to suffer and to die in our place you know jesus has loved us and he has loved us to the end he has willingly given his own life for us the most precious thing the most costly thing there there was nothing that God was unwilling to give there was no price that was too high for God to pay to save us from our sins that is the costliness of the love of God not only was God's love costly but secondly look at verse 10 love lasts it is costly and it lasts. Look at, look at verse 10. It says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, what John is saying is, God did not begin loving us when we began loving Him. In fact, God has loved us with with a love that began from all eternity, that even before the foundation of the world, God foreknew you and He chose you and He set His love and His affection on you and He purposed thousands of years before you were born that He would send Christ to come and to die for you. And then when we were born, it's not that we were born loving God. We were born hating God, shaking our fist at God, choosing our own way, loving sin, rejecting our creator. I mean, it's like we are just heaping up obstacles in the way, doing everything that we could possibly do to make God not love us. And yet his love lasts, his love lasts through it all. In fact, because of our sin, we had even brought the the very law of God between us and God. We had brought the sentence of God's wrath over our heads. And yet even that obstacle was not enough to separate us from the love of God because this is a love that stretches from everlasting to everlasting, a love that will never let us go. And, and just think about it. Number one, it says Christ was the propitiation for our sins. And that reminds us, a propitiation is a wrath-bearing sacrifice. A wrath-bearing substitute. Jesus came and when He died on the cross, He was dying under the wrath of God. He was suffering the very punishment of hell on behalf of His people. Because He was unwilling that anything should separate us from His love. And and what that also means is that if God has loved us so much that when we were His enemies, when we were hating Him, He still loved us, how much more then, now that we have been saved, now that through the death of His Son we've been reconciled to God, now that Christ lives for us, will we we continue to be kept by His love? Right In those days when we wake up and, and our heart is cold to God, His love doesn't change. You know, if God has loved you from all eternity, if He loved you when you hated Him, do you really think that the coldness of your affection for God is going to cause Him to stop loving you now? Right? And this God who didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? I mean, who is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ? All right, Paul says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, God loves us with a love that will not let us go. Um, in fact, that that hymn, maybe you guys sing that here, "A um, Love That Will Not Let Me Go." It was written by George Matheson, um, and I'm not sh- maybe maybe you have maybe you haven't heard the, the story behind that song. Uh, but George was, as a young man, um, he aspired to go into the preaching ministry, and he um, was engaged to be married. So you can imagine, just he's he's got this you know desire to be a pastor. He's got his um, betrothed uh, wife. He's he's looking forward to that. Uh, well, then he starts having some some health issues, and he's having some eye trouble. He goes to the doctor, and and the doctor says, "You're going to go blind. You know, this is irreversible." And and, and he, it just the the fear of how how will I be a preacher if I can't read? You know how is it? and so he goes to his um, his betrothed um, wife and and he he tells her about this and and ultimately her response is i I can't marry you I I, can, I I just can't be married to you know if you're gonna go blind like I I'm just not willing to commit to that and so here this this woman that he had loved you know she lets him go um, and you can imagine how heartbreaking that is well then um you know, by God's grace, he had a younger sister who kind of steps up and, and she would read to him. And, and so he's, he, he was able to pursue, you know, pastoring because his sister would read and he would memorize his sermons and he'd get up and, and preach. Um, but years go by and, and eventually his sister um, meets someone who is seeking her hand and, um, and so she gets engaged and eventually it's, it's the night of the wedding, And of course here, it's, it's a very different thing because this is all well and good. But, but here he is the night before his sister gets married. This one who has been with him, who has loved him, and now she is departing to be with another. And, and you can imagine the flood of emotions. I mean, here it was, he was planning to get married years back and she left him and now his sister is going on. And it's at that moment, that night, that he writes that hymn. And the first line, you know, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And and he is reflecting on this love of God that never lets us go. This love of God um, where it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, not that his love for us is grasping us so long as we are grasping on him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, this love that is willing to overcome any obstacle that that begins from all eternity and lasts forever. That is the love with which God has loved us, and therefore. In light of that, John in, in verse eleven continues and he says, Beloved, loved ones, if God so loved us, if he loved us with a love that is this costly, that lasts like this, we also ought to love one another. I mean, how how could we not love one another? I mean, when we understand God has loved me this way, and then I look around and I'm reminded that every other brother and sister in Christ is another person that God loves like that. How could I not love them? How could I not show forgiveness when they wrong me? How could I not be willing to you know, share the, the goods that I have when they have a need? How could I not be willing to open up my life to befriend them and come alongside them and encourage them? And and how could I not be willing to to grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice? If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It is such a simple message and yet um, so central to everything that we do. And then, finally, John kind of concludes this section in a very interesting way. In verse 12, he says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, it kind of, you know, when I first read that, I thought, why, why is he talking about no one having ever seen God? You know, where does this come from? In this flow of thought. But I think it starts to make sense when we understand a little more about the the background. And as I said before, there were these sort of proto Gnostic false teachers. They were all about secret knowledge and, you know, these special revelations. And one of the things they would often claim is that they had these special visions of God and that they had access to secret knowledge about God through these dreams and these visions and things of that nature. And You know, for those of us who have kind of been around the block, so to speak, in the Christian life, I think we are acquainted with people who claim these sorts of things, and we know, okay, I just need to sort of steer away from that. Um, But stop and think for a minute about what the appeal in their teaching is. You know, the appeal is, don't you really want to know God more? And all of us who are genuine Christians, I mean, that is the desire of our heart. I mean, that's what we long for. We know, as Jesus said, this is eternal life, that we may know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Like, we know that is what heaven is all about, is knowing God. Uh, We can say with David in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Right? We long to know God, and so the idea that there is some way to know God more is, is very attractive. But look at how John sort of speaks into that and ultimately refutes that kind of thinking. He says first, no one has ever seen God. Right? As Paul said, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no eye has seen or can see. God is invisible. No one can see God in the full radiance of His glory. And the point is, depth of knowledge of God does not come through visions. It comes from knowing Christ and Him crucified. I mean, the way that we know God in the glory of His love and His grace and His faithfulness and His power, it's not, oh, I just need to have a dream where I have this great vision. No, it's as we look in the Word of God and we see Jesus, our Savior who loved us and went to the cross for us. That's where we know God. But then secondly, John continues. He says, no one has ever seen God. And then he says, If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And what John seems to be getting at is, look, if you really want to know God, it's not through these secret visions that these guys are talking about. It's, as I just said, number one, it's through knowing Christ. We look in the Word, we see the Gospel. But number two, it comes through Loving one another. Because it's as we love one another that we come to abide in God and He in us. And as we are obedient in our loving one another, God's love is perfected in us and we come to know His love more fully and His love has its proper effect in us where we begin to walk in love. And so what he's saying is, look, if you want to have intimacy with God, if you want to know the living God, Love one another. Because to the degree that you live a life that is selfish, even if it is a very spiritual life, but if you are neglecting love and practical service and loving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that is going to limit the degree to which you walk with intimacy with God. And yet for those of us that you you say, wow, I long to know God more, well, then love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those people who not only have been made in the image of God and have been renewed in Christ, but now in the context of loving one another, it says God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Right? That if we're going to abide in Christ, the true vine, well, then we are going to abide in loving His people. And, and what a motivation that is, right? Then when others just, in, in the church, right, people seem really hard to love. And you think, you know, this is just so difficult. I just want to <laughs> go be around people that are easy to get along with. Well, no, when we lo- humble ourselves and when we forgive and when we bear one, another bur- one another's burdens and we love one another, that is how we grow as Christians, And that is how we grow in our awareness of the love of God for us. That's how we walk with God and enjoy fellowship with Him. And so, beloved, let us love one another. right? Because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Because God is love. And we have this example of the costly and lasting love of God in the cross of Christ. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so encouraged by the love that you have for us and this opportunity to reflect on that. And God, we know that um, it is good and right that we love one another. We pray, Lord, that you would show us how we can be more faithful in loving one another. And God, we pray that you would strengthen us to do that. And we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.